was walking through the mall with my oldest son, and we were walking toward the Apple store to uh, get my wife's phone repaired. And uh, if you're not an Apple fan, you need to know that they replaced it for free, even though it was out of warranty, because they're awesome. But uh, as we were walking to the Apple store, uh, I'm walking here, and my son is walking here, and there are stores just beside him. And as we're walking toward the store... We passed Victoria's Secret, and as we passed it, he had been looking at me, talking to me in conversation, and I noticed that I became less interesting, and I noticed that as we're walking along in the mall, that his gaze toward me became a little bit of a, you know, kind of, hey, dad, and then the thing that we're talking about, and he obviously, his eyes were pulled towards these images in the window of the store. Now, he is almost 11 years old, and so over the last few months, we've been having some conversations about sexuality to varying degrees, things that I think he can handle, things that I think he needs to know, but things that I think he needs to hear from me. And there have been several times, I can point back to one specifically, when we were sitting at Waffle House here in the Canton area, and he and I had gone for breakfast just to talk about some things and talk about life and you know, not really to have the talk, but to start a conversation for the next maybe 10 years of his life to really help him navigate these years. And so we were talking about something, and he stopped me, and he said, Dad, stop. I do not want to hear you talk about this anymore. (laughs) And there have been other instances over the last few months where he said that, Dad, stop. I don't want to hear you talk about this. And today, as we look at the tough topic of sexuality, I realize that there are probably some of you that over the next 30 minutes or so, you're going to look at me and say, Jeremy, stop. I do not want you to talk about these things anymore. But unfortunately, we have to. We we really need to engage God's Word on this tough topic especially because it is so prevalent and so misunderstood in our culture. But here's the first thing that I want you to know right up front related to sexuality, that sex and sexuality are not evil. They're not dirty. This is not something that's bad. It's not something that we should be afraid of, because right up front in God's Word, very, very early in the Scriptures, again, and we've referenced this passage a couple of times already in this series, but right up front in Genesis 1 and even Genesis 2, we see that God, in His plan for humanity, included sexuality. He included sex as a part of that. So if you got a Bible, flip with me. We're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures. I'll prompt you about where to turn if you want to follow along. We're not really kind of hanging in one passage like we do from time to time. But if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone to follow along with us, these will be up on the screen. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creative order of, of God. We see that he's creating all these different things. And we come to the passage beginning in verse 27 where God is creating human beings like you and I. This is what it says In verse 27 in the first part of 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. If you flip one page over probably to Genesis 2, in verses 24 and 25, we see a little bit of a continuation and a little bit of a different shape on this same story. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That part always makes my kids giggle. Now there's two things that happen in this text, these two passages here, that I think are very important for all of us to understand before we ever dive into anything else related to sex or sexuality from God's word. And the first is this, man and woman were created in the image of God. This is called Imago Dei. It's the idea of being created in the image of God. And what we need to understand right here in Genesis 1 is that it says that they were created in God's image, both man and woman. Human beings were created in the image of God. So individually, they reflect the image of God, the nature, the character of God. But not only individually, also together, God had a plan that involved them being together, being united in marriage, and that they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and the only way for them to be fruitful and multiply was to have sex. And so Genesis 2, as we continue in that, the second thing that we see here is that Genesis 2 is about a a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, leaving their father and mother and coming together in a marriage relationship to have sex with one another for the purposes of reproduction. So early on, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see that God had a design for sex and sexuality that was important to the story of mankind. But sex in this context is not just for the purposes of reproduction. You know, there's a lot of people that kind of hold that idea, that line, that that sex is only for reproduction. But we see throughout Scripture, in a number of places, I'm going to read two in just a second, where we see that God didn't just intend it to be something that we do just to have kids. If you read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, and let me just warn you, over the next like 60 seconds, some of you are going to blush, you know, but this is in God's word. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. I've never actually used that on Corey. Like, baby, you, you are a deer um, in this context, but I, maybe it worked for somebody. I'm not sure. Let her breasts satisfy you always. I'm just going to skip right over that. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breasts of a promiscuous woman? We see this connecting back to the idea that sex is supposed to exist between a husband and a wife. And anything outside of that is not God's plan. But even in the context of a husband and a wife, we see that there is a plan here for it not just to be for reproduction, it also to be something that should be enjoyable to the, to the husband and wife. Song of Solomon is a book that I encourage you to read because it's fascinating. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, says this, Your teeth are as white as sheep, which I guess is a good thing. Recently shorn and freshly washed, Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Evidently having two teeth was a big deal back then. Your lips, this would work in Alabama. No, anyway, I'm just keep going there. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. 
Your neck is as beautiful as the tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle, grazing among the lilies before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee. I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. This language that you have here is not some, hey, we are supposed to have sex so that we can bring a child into the world. This is, hey, we are supposed to find within a sexual union between a husband and a wife fulfillment and satisfaction there. And in God's ultimate design, that is what we find about sexuality. He says, listen, be fruitful, multiply, go and have babies. Now, my wife would have 15 babies, but we're done at four. Because three almost killed me, and she talked me into a fourth, and I'm glad she did because Kenley's awesome, but we are done, right? We've been fruitful and multiplied, and we're done multiplying, all right? But sex is not just for that. It's also for the idea that we would enjoy that, and we would find fulfillment in that. And God gave us those commands from very, very early in Scripture. And so how did we get from that to something else? Because in our culture today, this is not the view of sex that is popular, We don't see reality shows about loving, monogamous husband and wife, really. We see it about people that are sleeping around. We see it about people that are struggling with addictions. We see it about people that are flirting with people that aren't their wives or husbands. We we see all kinds of things, and those are the things that are celebrated. And so in our culture, sex has now become this dirty, secret, private, ugly, perverted, shame-filled thing, which is completely the opposite of them walking around naked and feeling no shame. There was something about their sexuality and something about the plan of God that didn't have any shame connected to it. But if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you understand that something shifted in their story that helped it to shift in our story. They were walking around in the Garden of Eden, and we see that something happened. And it wasn't sexual in nature. It was fruit in nature. And there's been some context here about pomegranates and all kinds of things, so maybe that plays into this. I'm not sure, but here's what I know. In the story of Adam and Eve, they kind of took part in sin, right? God said, don't eat of that fruit of that tree, and yet they did. And this is what it says in Genesis 3, beginning at the end of verse 6. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Did you see this new thing that was introduced into the story of mankind? It's the word shame. And if we think about sexuality, I think often where people struggle as it relates to sin and sexuality is with this feeling, with this emotion of shame. And I don't know if I've ever really put these two pieces together. I mean, I knew that they walked around naked and they weren't ashamed of anything, and then they ate of the fruit and they were ashamed, but I don't know if I've ever connected that in any way to sexuality. But if you think about it, the first thing that changed about their realization in life once they had committed the sin was that they immediately knew that they were ashamed of the way that they were not dressed, not covered, that their sexuality that was just kind of out there, it made them vulnerable There was something about them being naked that was now probably inappropriate in that because there was something that had happened to their eyes being opened. 
the conversation that they had had with the serpent. It was something that maybe they, were, they weren't even sure what he was saying. They weren't sure why God would say no to the fruit. But all of a sudden, this fruit and eating of the fruit now made them ashamed of something connected to their sexuality. And I, I remember being a middle school boy and how awkward that was. I mean, I was talking a little bit about my son. I remember that being awkward and you're ashamed and like everybody's in the locker room like changing for stuff. And like I was hiding like in the corner, kind of behind the locker, like over and I waited till everybody left and then I changed. And like, I don't know why I did that, but there was something about it. It was like, I realized like, I, I don't want anyone to see me. And I don't know that it was related to sex. I don't know that it was related to fruit. I, I don't know what it was related to, but There's something about this story that opens up shame for them that is a manipulation of their sexuality. Think about it, because their sexuality was on display prior to sin. And once the sin enters the story, now there is a manipulation of their sexuality because they sow fig leaves and they cover themselves. And we see that manipulation of sexuality begin to morph in the story of humanity. And just a few chapters later, we begin to see that now children not just are trying to have sex with their husband or wife, now children are trying to have sex with their parents. Just a few chapters later in Genesis, this perversion of the story of God, the shame, the manipulation of sexuality, just a few chapters later, now children are trying to have sex with their parents. Then we see a story about a city that is so wicked that God intends to destroy that city. It's the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story there is, is, is awesome, and we, we don't have time to go into all of it, but you have Abram and you have Lot, and Lot's gone this way, and Abram's gone this way, and he's now pleading for the city and for Lot's life and for his family. And what you have is you have these two angels that show up to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah right before God's intended plan to destroy it. And these two angels meet Lot, and Lot invites them to come to his house, and the men and the people in that city, they see these two angels, these two men, they come to Lot, and so they see that, and this is what it says in Genesis 19, verse 4, but before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house, and they shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Now, let me just tell you, there is no shame there. These men, young and old, are walking up to this house and screaming out in in an angry mob, in a crowd, send the men that are staying in your house out so we can have sex with them. Like, how did we get in Genesis 1 to now Genesis 19 from the story of God to this kind of blatant manipulation of sexuality. This is homosexuality. Like, this is not Imago Day. This is not, this is the image of God. This is saying, I see something I want, and it's about my pleasure and my fulfillment, not in the reflection of the nature of God. This, this idea here of homosexuality that's presented and we see throughout other places of Scripture, it cannot connect to God's design as it relates to sex and sexuality because his initial command was to be fruitful and multiply and homosexuality by its very nature cannot produce children. It's not a part of God's original design related to sex and sexuality. This is not the modern-day picture of homosexuality that's presented to us as it relates to gay marriage of two loving, committed people that need to have the same right as other heterosexual-type couples. This is blatant disregard for God's design towards sex and sexuality. 
There's no shame here. This is not just about homosexuality. This is about rape. This is about gang rape. This is about people coming to commit an unthinkable sin towards these two angels that they think were men staying at the house of Lot. I want you to listen to some of the statistics about the present-day culture related to sexuality. 18.3% of American women have already been raped. Almost half of that happened before they were under the age of 18. Men who use porn are more likely to believe that a woman who dresses provocatively deserves to be raped. They responded to that in a survey. And currently there are an unprecedented number of girls, 120 million to be exact, in the world, who have been sexually abused or raped before the age of 20. This is a manipulation of God's design for sex and sexuality. And we see that it is prevalent in our culture and in our world. So much so that people would respond to a survey because of their own kind of infidelity with their eyes and they would say, a woman who's dressing provocatively deserves to be raped. This is a manipulation of God's design for sex and sexuality because what we see here is from Genesis 1 to Genesis 19, we see this manipulation of sex taking a little incremental step away from God's design in every one of the stories where we see it play out. And I don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't know why this issue specifically is so divisive. I don't know why this issue specifically is such an easy place for us to get trapped or to feel shame or to feel guilt or to do things that we would never have thought that we would do in a million years. But here's what I do believe with all of my heart. I personally believe that because we are the Imago Dei, because we are created in the image of God, I believe this is the one place that the enemy is trying to pervert that in our lives. That if he can cause us to see ourselves differently than the image of God, if he can cause us to see other people differently than the image of God, if he can cause us to pervert with our own eyes how we see ourselves sexually, how we see someone else sexually, then they lose the Imago Dei and they become something just for our fulfillment to quench our desires. And I think Jesus understood this. Jesus, the Son of God, comes to earth, and he speaks on all kinds of different issues. And we see him do the miraculous. But what we see early here in the book of Matthew is we see the beginning of his ministry. We see him begin this ministry by what we, we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. He kind of stands up like I'm standing here, maybe on a little higher place, and he begins to address people on a number of things connected, most of them, to the law that they would have known from the Old Testament. And there was, there was some stipulations in the Old Testament law related to adultery. You should not commit adultery. And if you do, here's the repercussions. And man, you can be killed. And so this is a big deal. They held it in high esteem that you should honor your marriage relationship and you shouldn't do anything to betray that. And then Jesus completely flips the script on them in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 5, verse 27 says this. We're going to read to verse 30. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now here's... Here's what's a problem for a lot of us that have grown up in the church, been around the church for maybe a number of years. We've heard this verse so often that we miss the outlandish claim that Jesus just made. I realize 
that if I were to do anything physically to betray my marriage with Corey, with someone else, that I'm committing adultery. I think we would all understand that. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you're right. That's, you're guilty of that. But you don't even have to do something physically. If your eyes look at someone else with lust in your heart, you are doing the exact same thing as if you physically betrayed your marriage covenant with your wife. I want you to think about that for a second. Don't, don't put on your church hat. Don't put on your Christian hat, your Sunday school hat, your Bible hat. I want you to think about what Jesus was saying there. He's saying you are just as guilty by what you do with your eyes as you are what you do with your body. That's a pretty outlandish claim if you ask me. I was in student ministry for about 10 years, and I used to have students all the time, and we would talk about this, or maybe they were just wrestling with sexuality in their teenage years, and so they would talk to me and to Corey and student leaders, and I would get some version of this question. Like, like what is lust, though? Like, what's the difference in lust and, like, just admiring attraction? What's the difference in lust and, like, seeing someone that's beautiful and looking at them? Or what, what's the difference in lust? And, and, and I would try to give them the best answer that I knew how, but here's Here's what I, I heard one time, and I kind of stole this definition, and I used it a lot. The difference in lust and admiring goes like this. Admiring takes a second. Lust happens in the second second. Admiring is looking at someone and going, wow, they're, they're really attractive. That moment that you linger in that is where there begins to be lust in your heart. I've even heard it this way. Admiring says, wow. Lusting says, whoa, whoa. Right? Right? You understand what I'm saying? You with me? Everybody, everybody feel me right now? Like admiring just says, wow, that, that's, that's a beautiful person. Like that, that's an attractive person right there. Lust says, wow, look at that. I, I, I can't take my eyes off of that. Jesus says, if you do that, like if it's not admiring in one second, but it's lusting in the second second, like there's something that's happening in your heart that's different than just admiring, and that is the same as if you are physically doing something that is not, with someone who is not your wife, who is not your husband, and that is the same. It carries the same penalty. It's about looking beyond the Imago Dei and trying to see beneath the fig leaves. It's saying, hey, there's something about you that I want to see more of, and I'm not actually able to do that and so I'm going to do that with my eyes. I'm going to do that with my mind. I'm going to do that in my heart because I know physically I can't really ever go there. And so I'm just going to do that. And, and listen, let me just say to you, and marriage is next week, but let me just say to you if you are married, and this is something that you're struggling with, we'll talk about this a little bit at the end, don't think that it's a victimless crime. Don't think that this is a victimless act. You are literally betraying your spouse. Jesus said here, it's the exact same sin. So what we used to tell teenage guys all the time, and I think it would work for anybody in the room, learn how to bounce your eyes, right? You feel like, hey, I'm about to linger on into the second second. I'm going to find something interesting up here in this light, and I'm just going to stare at it. And I'm just going to admire the light of the Lord that's shining down on me, right? I mean, just figure out a way to bounce your eyes so that you don't betray the one that God has given to you. Justin Walker, who used to be on staff here at this campus as our worship leader, he's one of our teaching pastors now, he said this in the sermon planning meeting for this a few months ago. He said, lust re reverses the course of creation because it turns the other person back into dirt. 
creation, the Imago Dei, was about the dirt person becoming in the image of God. And when you and I take part in lusting after someone else, what we do is we say, I'm going to take your Imago Dei, and I'm going to turn you back into nothing with more value than just dirt. Something that I feel like has no value. It doesn't possess the value of God. You aren't worth any more than me viewing you through the lens of my own satisfaction. This is the primary problem among so many others with pornography. Pornography is rampant in our day. The statistics are staggering and they change by the moment. And so even trying to capture statistics that would help us to really understand what this is even about were very difficult. But I tried to grab some things to help us understand the dangers of pornography. You know, pornography is not just something that men struggle with. We're going to read a statistic in a minute that says this is also a problem that women have, including very young women and teenage girls. Not only do we look at that, but we see that some couples choose to try to bring pornography into their marriage to try to help them as it relates to their own sex life. And here's what I would say to you, don't do that. Because what you're doing is you are literally allowing your spouse to commit adultery on you with their eyes by lusting after what they see on the screen, even if they turn their affection towards you. And so here's what I want you to look at, at these statistics related to pornography. Being married to a porn viewer increases your odds of depression by 43%. Women generally experience a 40% reduction in self-esteem after marrying a man who views porn. If your spouse views porn, you are 22% more likely to have a food addiction or eating disorder. 20% of internet porn comes from coerced or trafficked children, and close to half of all trafficked women are forced to do pornography, revealing that internet porn use directly supports child and adult sex trafficking. 30% of online porn consumers are women. 17% of those women call themselves addicted to pornography. After analysis, less than 9.9% of the top-selling porn films include any behaviors like kissing, laughing, caressing, or verbal compliments. And so I would say to married couples that maybe have looked to pornography as something to include in their marriage, what are you trying to create in the affection of your spouse towards you? Because they're not watching things that is going to help them show affection towards you. It's another type of behavior. Men who use porn report decreased sexual interest in their girlfriends or wives, and 75% of married porn addicts eventually stop having sex with their spouse. Pornography is dangerous. It is not something that we should go, wow, it's, you know, it's a victimless crime. No. What we understand is that most of the people that you might see in some type of pornographic material is probably there not through their own choice. They've been abducted, they've been trafficked, they've been kidnapped, and they've been put on that screen so that you could feel some type of satisfaction. Beyond that, if you say, well, I'm just doing this and it doesn't hurt anybody, if you are married, you are hurting your spouse. And the statistics about the way that they respond to that tells us that. You say, well, I'm not married, and you know, eventually, once I get married and I'm able to have sex, I'll stop. And I would say to you that the statistics that I found, and it was all over the map, so I didn't want to bring something that was solid. The statistics that I found showed that an overwhelming majority of people that were addicted to pornography prior to marriage struggled with pornography in marriage. Marriage does not end this struggle, and so I would say to you, get help, come clean, confess the struggles that you have related to this issue, because Jesus gets harsh when he's talking about this issue, when he's talking about pornography, he does not play right here. What he says is, listen, if it's your eyes that are causing you to sin, you would be better without eyes 
than to keep going forward and eventually miss an eternity with me. He says, if it's your hand that's causing you to sin, you need to cut it off and be without hands and require help to do your daily tasks that continue in a lifestyle that would lead you to hell. He says, you have to get serious about staying sexually pure. Your current or future marriage, it is worth you staying pure. Whether you're currently married or not, your purity is important, and your eyes are the gateway to your purity. But more importantly than that, it's your holiness and your place in eternity that is connected to how strongly you flee or attempt to flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a place where the Apostle Paul is speaking to a church in the city of Corinth, which was a highly sexualized culture. And he talks to them on a number of different subjects. And what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 6 really helps for us to shape a conversation around correct behavior and the response that we have both towards sexual immorality and even to how it gets to marriage beginning in 1 Corinthians 7. This is what he says in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to this. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or who commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wanted this Corinthian church to know that if you do not flee from sexual immorality, you are guilty and you will miss out on the kingdom of God. He doesn't isolate sexual sin. He actually puts it alongside all the other things that will cause you to miss out on the kingdom of God. But here's what it relates to in today's topic. He says, listen, if you're guilty of sexual sin of any kind, you're guilty. If you are guilty of adultery, both physically or through lust, you're guilty. If you're guilty of prostitution, you're guilty. If you're guilty of homosexuality, you're guilty. A lot of times we try to elevate that issue above others. And what Paul is saying right here is any type of sexual immorality carries an equal sentence of guilt before God. And it's alongside these other things so that he's saying, listen, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, then you have to pursue purity and flee sexual immorality. You have to try to help yourself get back to the imago Dei where you see yourself and everyone that you come in contact with as the image bearers of God and not just someone who exists for my personal satisfaction. And I know what you might be saying today. You might say, hey man, Pastor Jeremy, I get it, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say these things, but you don't understand. You don't understand my life. You don't understand the temptations that I struggle with. Like you don't know my family context. You don't understand. I'm young. I'm just kind of figuring it out. This is going to help me in the long run anyway, because I'm kind of figuring out what I like and what I don't like. And so man, you don't understand that I'm just going to kind of do my own thing sexually and then eventually I'll settle down? Listen to these statistics. Contrary to public perception, married couples enjoy sex significantly more than unmarried singles by a factor of 22% higher. Testing out a partner for marriage by having premarital sex increases the odds of divorce to 75%. A lack of prior sexual experiences and partners actually increases the odds of sexual satisfaction, contrary to the myth that having more partners increases sexual responsiveness and pleasure. Men who have premarital sex are more than four times more likely to have affairs than men who do not. And women who have premarital sex are more than eight times more likely to have affairs than women who do not. 
I hope that you understand the serious nature of this subject matter. That when God created man and woman in his image, he wasn't giving them something to just try out with whoever their latest fling is. He wasn't saying that they should just kind of figure out what pleases them. He said, no, 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 no. I formed you out of the dirt as a mago day. You are image barriers of me. You reflect me. In every interaction, including those of a sexual nature, you should reflect me. And that means be fruitful and multiply in the context of marriage. It means in the context of marriage that you should enjoy sexuality. And anything outside of that is sinful. Anything. He says, this is about the imago day. Find someone who is literally bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, who leaves father and mother and cleaves to you so that you together can enjoy sexuality for as long as you both shall live. And maybe you would say, no, 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 but it's my body. I can do what I want to. That's what the sexual revolution was all about. This is my body. How dare anyone try to tell me that I can't do what I want to do with my own body? Listen to the words of Paul, again in 1 Corinthians 6, in verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is not yours, it's God. It's God's body. And I want you to meditate on that a little bit. I want you just to take a moment and say, okay, if my body belongs to God, then how should I treat myself and others in this context of sexuality? Because if I view myself as it's just mine, I get to do what I want to, then I am going to find myself in a place that is ridden with shame and guilt. I may not feel it every time. I may not feel it right up front, but eventually there comes a shame and a guilt that exists. And here's the thing. I'm not asking you to do something that I don't think possesses great value for you. I want you to ask yourself this question. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who regretted sexual purity? If you're a teenager in the room and you go, man, you just don't understand like the struggles that I have. You don't understand the things that I'm facing. You don't understand how hard it is, how, how much of a struggle it is for me to stay sexually pure. The temptations that I face, the things that I experience in school, in my life, in my home, through technology, you don't understand. Here's what I would say to you. I, I take my pastor hat off for just a moment and I just say to you, fight for your purity. It is worth it. If you have betrayed some type of sexual purity up to now, you've done something that you shouldn't have done, you've something, done something outside of the bounds of maybe a biblical marriage relationship, I would say to you, repent, turn away from it, and fight for your sexual purity. Your future spouse will thank you. Your children will thank you. Because you will have the ability to say, this is what God's design is related to sexuality. So if this morning you would say to me, Jeremy, you don't... I'm guilty. And these things you're talking about, I, I'm guilty. I've done some of these things. And I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I feel, I feel shame. I don't always feel it, but especially in a moment like this, when you're talking about this subject, man, I feel shame. I feel guilt. I know that I have missed the mark. And, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do in that. I, I, I'm guilty of lust. I'm guilty maybe of, of pornography, looking at pornography, maybe an addiction to pornography. I'm guilty of, of maybe committing adultery on my spouse. I'm, I'm guilty of premarital sex. I'm guilty of some type of sexual sin. And, and I don't know how to respond to this today. 
In the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 11, I want you to hear the words of Paul as he helps us to understand how God responds to us. He says, some of you were once like that. He talked about all those things that we were guilty of that would keep us from the kingdom of God. He said, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, he's talking past tense to a group of people that he understands where they stand with God. But today, I would say to you in a future tense that the reality is the exact same. If you say, hey, I'm in this room and I'm guilty and I've experienced some type of sexual sin in my life and I feel shame, I've done the fig leaves thing a number of different ways. I've I've prayed and I've cried and I've got into an accountability group and I've confessed and I've hidden and I've, I've done all the things that come with shame. And I don't know what to do now. I would say to you today, turn to the God who can cleanse you. Respond to the God who makes us holy, who makes us right by the Spirit of God. I love that word cleanse. Because again, so much about sexuality has been connected to us being dirty and feeling dirty. And it's almost like Paul saying, hey, listen, if you feel dirty, God can make you clean. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, yeah, I'm not really guilty of sexual sin, but I don't know that I have a proper understanding of God creating me as a Mago Dei. Like if sexuality starts from a place of me being an image bearer of God, I need God to help form that in me. I need to see myself that way, and I need to see other people that way because I believe it would change the way that I interact with them. I believe it would change how I view myself when I look in the mirror. I'm not just finding flaws now. I'm seeing a reflection of God's image staring back at me. My mom said, God doesn't make junk. And you're not junk. I don't care what anybody said to you. You are Imago Dei. You are the image of God. And so no matter where you stand today, if you say, when you started talking about sex and sexuality, like I didn't, I didn't really know where you were headed, but man, I know for sure I'm guilty. Turn to a God today that can cleanse you. If you say, you know, it's not even about guilt or innocence right now. I just need a proper perspective of God's image on me. Turn to God and see how he views I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment as we wrap up our time together. Ultimately, Paul said this. He says, no matter where you stand for eternity, call on the name of the Lord. He's the one that cleanses you, and he's the one who makes you holy. If you would say to me today with no one looking around, Jeremy, and I'm... I'm guilty of sexual sin in some way. Something that you've shared today, something that you've expressed today, I am guilty. And I need God to forgive me. I need to be made whole. I need to be made clean. I need to be made holy. And and I just want to start that today. I just want you to lift your hand right where you're at. Nobody's looking around. You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Anybody else? What I would say to you before we move beyond this is we're going to pray. When you leave.
leave this moment, I encourage you to come clean with somebody. Confess your sins one to another. Go to your spouse and tell them what you've done. Go to your parents, tell them what you've done. Go to your sister, your brother. Go to your best friend. Go to your youth pastor. Come to me. The Bible tells us that we're set free by the words of our testimony. And I encourage you today to find freedom by getting what's in the dark out into the light. If you would say to me today, Jeremy, it's not about guilt or innocence. It's not even about sexual sin for me. It's about a proper understanding of Imago Dei. That I see myself as the image bearer of God. And I need God to help me see that reflection every time I look at myself. And every time I look at someone else. Would you just lift your hand? And put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Let's pray. God, I thank you for every hand that was lifted in this place. That today they are responding to you. Some of them in the first part of this response have said, I am guilty of sexual sin. And so God, now I pray from a freedom, from the, the tools of the enemy to entangle them. I pray now against shame or guilt or condemnation as they respond to you. As they say, I, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I pray right now that they would find salvation in you. God, I thank you that you cleanse us and that you make us whole. I thank you, God, that sex and sexuality is your design and it's not something meant to be dirty or evil, but you have specific constraints on that so that we would find fulfillment and that we would be in your will. So God, right now I pray for freedom from addictions to pornography, lust. I pray for the boldness to get out of unhealthy relationships with those who are not our spouses. I pray right now against every tool the enemy would try to use to bind us up and that, God, we would understand our rightful standing, our right place before you. God, I pray for every person that lifted their hand today to say, I need to understand in greater detail Imago Dei. I need to realize that I am not a dirt person. I am the image of God. Help us all individually to see ourselves that way, and God, let us see others the way that you see them as well. I believe it will change everything about the way that we view people. And I believe it will reshape the conversation around sexuality. Help us, God, to find purity, to pursue purity, and God, to reflect you in every area of our life. In Jesus' name I pray.